listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. The Paris Agreement on Climate Change, positive signals to future and current generations of least developed countries and small island states. With speakers James Cameron, MJ Mace, Linda Siegel and Professor David Fisk. Chaired by Dr. Feja Lesniewska. Recorded on the 14th of January 2016. This event was brought to you by CISD and the Law, Environment and Development Centre. Good evening and thank you to everybody for coming on what is a particularly cold January, but we're happy about that, that it's a cold January, um, for this evening and uh, an event where I'm absolutely delighted to have such an excellent panel uh, three people who have worked very closely on um, climate change from a legal perspective mm. for if you add it together I think it might we might get half a half a century I think <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> and also our discussant uh, David Professor David Fisk from Imperial College who uh, has similarly been working on climate change prior to the UNFCCC convention text um, and he was one of the architects inputting into particularly from a scientific perspective so I'll just run through our panel uh, um, the first to speak will be um, MJ Mace who is a lawyer who has worked extensively uh, on um, uh, working with AOSIS the Alliance of Small Island States she worked with FIELD the Foundation for International Environmental Law and Development which is actually a link uh, amongst the three lawyers that we have here, the Foundation for International Environmental Law and Development was established, I believe, by Mr. Cameron and his friend, <laughs> uh, Professor Philippe Sands, um, and it was hosted at SOAS. It was it originally here? Third of Kings. Third of Kings. Yeah. Yeah, so, and then it got lost. There's a story there, but... <laughs> um, so, yes, MJ was the director at Field and has uh, been working very extensively on mitigation particularly, but also was uh, on the compliance committee under the Kyoto Protocol, um, but has numerous, as all these people, numerous other things uh, she's worked on. Linda Seagull also worked at Field um, as a staff lawyer and has worked with AOSIS. And she's particularly been uh, sort of pioneering and working on uh, adaptation, but especially loss and damage and the loss and damage mechanism. And uh, so she'll be um, speaking to that this evening. James Cameron will then wrap up in terms of our, our panel discussion uh, as he'll be focusing on finance and largely finance but technology transfer. Uh, James has uh, been involved in the climate change in the international sphere since the early, early days before the first uh, convention text was agreed. He was there trying to form it into a working international mechanism um, and he can reflect on whether he's achieved that. <laughs> and, uh, but so uh, our focus today is very much the Paris Agreement and where we are now and whether the Paris Agreement is really uh, a success of international negotiation and diplomacy but will it actually achieve uh, the, the meet the needs of least developed countries and small island developing states 
rather than just solely achieve uh, emission reductions, although that's a primary objective. Obviously, the uh, development needs of uh, and the adaptation needs of um, those people in least developed countries and small and developing states are fundamental. So um, the final person to be speaking today is Professor Fisk, and he is uh, the director <coughs> of the Lang O'Rourke uh, uh, Chair in Systems Engineering, and he specializes in systems approaches to understanding the onset of unsustainable development and how this might be best included in risk assessment, large-scale cities especially, which is quite a big deal, I think. <laughs> and, uh, so he is going to be providing an overview, reflection, and discussion um, on today's uh, plenary speakers. So without further ado, I'll call MJ to uh, give um, a 15-minute pre presentation. We also will have a question and answers afterwards, and then you'll have the luxury of a drink session uh, to capture any of these speakers and uh, interrogate them a bit more. Okay. Thank you very much. Right. I need something in front of me here, though. Oh, that's good. God, blimey. <laughs> right. I did have it all laid up, but... Uh, right. Paris, Paris. Right. There you go. Thanks. Don't worry. It's all smooth. Yeah. I thought you could expect me to do something on the stage, but I'm uh, <laughs> happy with But a tap dancing is good, you know. Right. Cool. <clears throat> okay, where you go? And I go. There you go. Wait. All right, good. Here we go. Um, you have an empty screen in front of you? So we're not quite going yet. <laughs> Days of view foils. He's going to speak about technology later. Being your own ball. No one can touch you. Right. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Do you want to start? That was. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I would have found something to say to you, not to worry, but uh, this will be a bit more disciplined. So, um, all right. Well, I think people, people who attended Paris have certainly found, as I've found, that you, you come back and people say, gee, are, are you happy or are you sad? And you think, happy, sad, gee, where do I go with this? I could give you a little on both sides, you know? Or, or you know, have you recovered? And you think, well, have I recovered? Yeah, no, no, not quite yet. It'll be a while. Did you applaud? Another good question. Well, you know, okay, well, did you or didn't you? I didn't even want to answer that question. Um, you know, did you applaud voluntarily or did you, you know, did you, did you have guilt when you applauded? This sort of thing. I didn't applaud. Anyway, let's talk about why. Um, I'm going to give you first a case for pessimism, I suppose, and then a case for optimism, just because uh, you can see maybe why some people might have been happy, why some people might have been sad, why some people are maybe realists and others are, you know, enthusiasts or whatever. Anyway. What is the case for pessimism? I think basically the science at the moment and where we're at at the moment is pretty much the, the current case for <coughs> pessimism. And you can ask yourself whether the Paris Agreement is, has changed, you know, changed the existing reality, right? It's a treaty, it's something we've written down, it's, it's, a, it's an agreement among countries to do something, but it's all about what gets done um, with the agreement to do. 
Um, so what do we really have now? Uh, on the table, we have some nationally determined mitigation efforts um, that, if delivered, would still give us you know, well above two degrees of warming. And we already know that uh, when you're looking at two degrees of warming, you're already you know, well beyond what the objective of the Convention is seeking, which is the avoidance of dangerous climate change. Um, in fact, the current policies in place, which are different from the pledges that have been made in connection with the Paris Agreement, would give us over three degrees of warming. So if you look on the, on the right, you've got current policies in blue. If you look on the left, you see pledges in, in red. Uh, but the bottom line is that everything that's sort of above the green is bad news. So we're kind of in the bad news zone right now. Um, we already know uh, that there's a, you know, with existing policies in place, there's a very good chance of exceeding three degrees. And we know that, uh, that the pledges themselves are insufficient. No one was really hiding that in Paris. We also know that the policies lag well behind the pledges. So we're in worse shape than even the pledges. Um, we know we all have a very small window of opportunity to actually turn the ship around, uh, and we know that policies need to be put in place as soon as possible. Um, some more graphics, I suppose. If you have a look here, what you see really in blue, um, you see current policy projections. If countries just kept the, their current policies in place, uh, that's where you'd be going, the blue, the blue bit. Um, if you look at the pledges and the INDCs that have been brought forward, um, you'd be in that sort of uh, melon-looking zone, the orangey-looking zone. So yes, it's a... It's a, we now have something that you know, takes our trend down, um, but again, that's, that's depending upon the delivery of those NDCs. Now, if you look, if you look uh, further, then you have the range that are consistent with a, a two-degree two limitation, and then that would be consistent with a 1.5-degree limitation. So if you look at the pledges from Paris, you're here. Thanks very much. Where do we need to go? We've agreed we'll go down here. In fact, we've agreed to go here and to pursue this. Uh, and if you look at the time frames, you realize that we don't have a lot of time to get it together, um, which is why I like slides, because they're colorful and because words can be very boring. Okay. Um, so whose NDCs are sufficient? Well, you can look around the room and, and ask yourself, gee, what country do I come from? And then you can find yourself on the map, and then you can take yourself home and spank yourself, because guess what? No one's NDCs are sufficient. Or the few that are are from small countries whose ambitions in aggregate don't add up to a whole lot. So the reality is, Right now, um, very few countries, NDCs, and by, when I say NDCs, that's nationally determined contributions. We had a whole fight over whether we were talking about contributions or commitments. We won't go into that, but let's, let's you know, imagine them as commitments. But who's are sufficient? Really, no one. So again, this is the, the case for pessimism, is do we even have, do we even have pledges or uh, intended nationally determined contributions that have been advertised by countries that are sufficient to deliver uh, against a two-degree goal or against a 1.5-degree goal? The answer is no, we don't. So that's the case for pessimism. If you look at these colors, uh, the red, if everyone were to adopt uh, efforts uh, consistent with the efforts put forward by those countries in red, we'd be looking at a, a three to four degree increase in global average surface temperature, which is uh, not where anyone wants to be. Um, and if you look at the, the countries in yellow uh, that make up quite a bit of the, uh, of the global emissions that we're dealing with, um, those countries also, their efforts, if everyone were to take efforts consistent with what those countries are doing, uh, we would still not be below two degrees. So the, the point is pretty clear. Um, we're just, we don't have enough on the table to get us where we need to go. Um, so then the question is, well, what, is, what does Paris bring us? Is it going to change this or, or provide a way to turn the ship around? Is there a cause for optimism? Well, there are some tools. What are the tools? Well, first we have a legally binding treaty. Okay, well, in and of itself, is that enough? Uh, no, but it's some sort of signal, right, of political commitment. We were actually able to agree on something that would require ratification. The countries would come together and sign. 
And then at the end of the day, whether the words incited or shall or should or whatever they are, uh, we've actually agreed to do these things that do say shall. And we've agreed to take the actions that we've said we'll take um, to the extent uh, the terminology around them, you know, sends a nice flavor of, yes, I will, right? So we have a legally binding treaty. We also have an agreed direction of travel uh, in Article 2, which, as I mentioned, is to, is to now hold the increase in global average surface temperature to well below 2 degrees, but importantly, and to pursue efforts to limit to 1.5. And people will remember that that's uh, an issue that's been outstanding for quite some time. And uh, what this manages to do is actually, I suppose, give quite a flavor that every little bit of temperature increase is significant. And it is. And it's particularly to particularly vulnerable countries, the small island states that we deal with, the least developed countries, and basically to everyone. Every little bit of temperature increase is going to have massive, massive ramifications everywhere. Um, so what tools do we also have? We, we have now, we have a global response. What does that mean? Everybody, right? Everybody's agreed to do something. That's not, that's not new. Uh, under the convention, everyone actually agreed to take mitigation actions. Uh, but um, there's more detail here, and that's what's helpful. All parties have agreed to undertake, undertake's a nice word, and communicate ambitious efforts with a view to achieving the purpose. And of course, the purpose now is two degrees uh, and pursuing 1.5, a very hard-fought hard uh, element. And also importantly, the efforts of all parties are to represent a progression over time. So there's this idea of no backsliding. Countries will continue to build on what they have done, um, going uh, more broadly and more deeply uh, into their mitigation uh, efforts. So uh, a lot of words up here, but basically what's new and exciting, okay, it's, well, it depends on your view of what's new and exciting. Someone said that this looked like the Curzon Theater earlier, so I don't think this is maybe as exciting as what you might find, you know, if you're watching the Golden Globes tonight on TV or something. But um, what is exciting, I suppose, from, from folks who follow this, is that we have agreed that we should have a global peaking of emissions, but we couldn't agree on the time frame. So we have as soon as possible, which at least sends a flavor, um, and rapid reductions thereafter. Um, we have this notion, we couldn't agree on the words, you know, on any words really, decarbonization or carbon neutrality or climate neutrality. We couldn't really agree on anything. Uh, quite specific enough to give, you know, everybody comfort, but we do have this strange reference to achieving a balance between emissions and removals by the second half of this century. Um, but again, this sends a flavor um, that we need reductions to happen quickly, um, and we need to basically be heading to zero emissions. That's the, that's the reality of it. Um, now, each party is to prepare, communicate, and maintain. These are really hard-fought words, not that so much as uh, uh, the, the missing word here, which would be to implement. We couldn't agree to put in the word implement. Um, why is that important? Well, part of the reason you want a legally binding treaty in the first place, part of the reason why you like the Kyoto Protocol in the first place is because guess what? Parties had quantified reductions that they were going to meet, and guess what? They agreed to actually deliver them. Um, so here there was quite a huge dance around what words would be used uh, to describe what parties would be doing with these nationally determined contributions. Um, so we have agreed that they, you know, parties will prepare, communicate, and maintain successive NDCs that they intend to achieve. So we're getting closer that they intend to achieve. But it's really some of the supporting uh, articles that, that provide uh, the momentum behind this. Um, we have agreement that everyone will be moving toward absolute reduction targets over time. Um, that's a step forward. We have a reflection of support to be delivered to, devel uh, to developing countries to achieve some of the Article 4 elements. We importantly have NDCs that will be communicated every five years. So we have now agreement on cycles. So every five years there will be something new coming from parties. Parties will be under pressure to look at what they've already said they'll do and to do more every five years. Um, but it won't be just these five-year hiccups. Um, there'll be a global stock take that happens in between these five-year periods that should inform uh, the level of ambition of these NDCs. 
NDCs will also be captured in a public registry. You think, what is that? Well, we don't quite know fully what it will be, but it could be um, exactly what we have in some ways under the, under the Kyoto Protocol, which is a quite a detailed way of tracking uh, where parties' emissions are at. Um, but the point is, it'll be public and we'll have uh, more clarity and transparency on what individual parties are actually doing, which is something that has been missing, actually, from the international process for quite some time. Um, we've had a, a system that's had very good transparency for what developed countries are, are doing and very little transparency on what developing countries are, are up to. And now we have a, a system that will actually put everyone in the same box, importantly, so that, uh, that uh, everyone's uh, uh, basically able to, to compare um, what they're doing to what their neighbors are doing and to feel suitably guilty uh, or proud, which is hopefully a dynamic that will help the process as a whole. Um, importantly, parties have agreed to account for NDCs. That's really important. And everyone will be applying common methodologies and, importantly, also avoiding double counting, which has become more and more of a problem with the market-based mechanisms that we have set up. More text, don't panic. Um, but some of the supporting elements that are really important are this transparency framework that's been agreed, which has lots of provisions around uh, reporting and review. A technical expert review of everyone's inventories is a very important thing. Um, we'll have inventory reports at least biennially. That's an important thing when it comes to big developing countries. As I mentioned, we'll have common rules, but with flexibility uh, where countries' capacities are, are more challenged. Um, we'll also have, as I mentioned already, common methodologies and metrics. That's important as well. Right now, uh, it's a bit of a free-for-all. In the pre-2020 phase, we have countries that have uh, you know, pledged to achieve certain quantified targets, but using some very creative accounting techniques, the, whatever suits countries', uh, countries whims they have put forward. Um, but hopefully we're moving toward a more disciplined system for the post-2020 phase. Uh, we have, we actually managed surprisingly to agree on some markets text. What's interesting about the markets text is that it builds uh, in some ways constructively on what we have had actually under the KP. Because rather than looking at uh, allowances that can represent hot air, ultimately we're, we're looking at outcomes that are in the past. So mitigation outcomes. And we've dis discussed uh, and agreed on the need to avoid double counting and have a robust accounting system in place. So hopefully we'll do a bit better than we've done under the, under the KP of late. Um, we also agreed on a centralized mechanism that, that may or may not end up looking like the CDM one way or another. The, the jury's still out on that one. But at any rate, there's already been discussion around how we'll, we'll uh, collaborate uh, and work cooperatively uh, in, in ways that, that may involve uh, bilateral trading programs, whatever. But that discussion's, uh, it's, not, it's not quite dead yet. In fact, it may have some life left in it. Um, we've agreed on a global stock take that will inform countries' NDCs. So there'll be a look at the science, and countries will be invited and uh, more than invited. Um, they should be looking at the, the recent science to inform the ambition of their, of their subsequent and successive NDCs. So that's a good thing. The science is going to be filtering in. Um, we've also agreed on a compliance system. Um, you don't see a header that says compliance system, uh, but we do have a, a mechanism that's going to facilitate implementation and promote compliance. Big fights around what that'll do, but the reality is we're having the same kind of discussion that we have had previously around the KP compliance system. Triggers, consequences, et cetera. So we'll see what that ends up looking like, but it's moving in the right direction, one hopes. We also have, interestingly, a, a very low bar for entry into force. So we could end up with a really interesting situation in which the, the many, many different um, sets of guidelines and, uh, that we've agreed to have in place before the whole machinery enters into force uh, we could have quite a bit of pressure on that if entry into force happens early. Um, there's a very low bar, actually, for entry into force with this agreement. 55 parties, right, out of, what do we have, 190-some, uh, accounting for 55% of global emissions. So 
when parties representing that quantum of emissions come forward, at least 55 parties, we will have uh, entry into force. So that could happen soon. It could happen as early as this year, some have said, in which case it's going to be a free-for-all trying to get some of the rules in place as, as quickly as, as possible. Um, so what do we really have that's going to, that, that is the cause for optimism in addition to the, this framing? Uh, importantly, we have a number of opportunities for peer pressure and scientific input, and hopefully that's what's going to drive the machine, the gas in the tank. Um, in April, we're going to have a new analysis of the climate plans that have been submitted in 2015. We're going to have a signing ceremony that will hopefully be a bit of a big deal that's happening at the end of April. Um, countries will also be encouraged uh, to ratify if they're uh, able to do that at that time. So you'll have some momentum. Heads of state have been or will be invited to attend. Um, so there's a, a hope of keeping the political momentum going. Um, there'll be an update to the existing synthesis report that looks at what parties INDCs produce. Uh, there's going to be a public registry in place early this year. There's going to be a high-level event in connection with each COP that happens over the next four years uh, to strengthen mitigation efforts. We're going to have some high-level champions that have been appointed. Basically, we're going to have a lot of initiatives that are really meant to keep the political pressure on countries to uh, move forward uh, with their national planning efforts and to stand behind uh, the NDCs that they've already articulated. So hopefully the pressure will stay on countries to do that. Um, and then even before you know, the formal kicking off of this process happens in 2020. Countries will uh, already be invited to come back and communicate new NDCs. So the fact that a country's got an NDC out there for 2025 or for 2030, that alone is not supposed to take the pressure off. Countries are supposed to come back and communicate by 2020 a new NDC, if you've got a 2025 one in place, or uh, to communicate or update your contributions if you have one for 2030. So pressure's on everyone to have a think about what they've done, to recognize that it's not enough and to maybe do some more uh, based on what we know about the science, uh, including uh, the special report that we'll get from the IPCC about the impacts of global warming at 1.5 degrees uh, and pathways to achieve that. So basically there'll be quite a bit of pressure early on uh, in the hopes that uh, despite where we're at, um, countries will be uh, encouraged to do more. So what are the big leaps? We have more of a recognition of science. We have the, the, the two and the 1.5 degree goals to create some top-down pressure on what otherwise might look like a very bottom-up system. We have the erosion of this existing firewall that's been a bit of a nightmare over the last, I don't know how many years, between Annex 1 and non-Annex 1 parties, this developed, developing country divide that's been like poison uh, in some of the negotiating sessions for as long as I can remember. Um, we have this thing that we're called, one minute, one minute, no problem, this is my last slide, if you're happy to hear. Last slide. Um, we have this notion of nationally determined contributions, which is, you know, garbage language, but it's intended, sorry about that, but it's intended to remove any excuses that anyone has, really. Like, you know, if I say, hey, you're not going to do, what is this that you're not doing your NDC? And you go, well, you know, I, what are you going to say as a country? I didn't really mean it in the first place? No. I mean, you brought it forward, right? So it's, it's your own doing. You've articulated your contribution. Now it's, it's time to actually do it. So the framing is meant to enable countries to, to, to bring forward what they can. We have principles to avoid backsliding. We have a common rule set and a transparency system that could actually deliver much of what the Kyoto Protocol has delivered if, you, if, if the political will were there to do it. Um, and as I mentioned, lots of opportunities for peer pressure and political moments. And there's also been quite an effort to engage uh, on behalf of the Executive Secretary and, and uh, the COP Presidency to engage a broader grouping of stakeholders in mitigation efforts. So there's cause for pessimism. Uh, given where we're at and given the inadequacy of, of countries' efforts to date and pledges that have been articulated to date, but then also some cause for optimism because the machinery is there if there's a political will to actually 
use the machinery. Uh, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Okay, um, thanks MJ, and now we'll have Linda Siegel, who will be speaking about adaptation specifically and loss and damage mechanism as well. Do you need a hand with just hit the arrows, right? Okay. Good afternoon, or evening, everyone. <laughs> I'm going to sort of be looking at the other side of the coin from what um, MJ has looked at. Um, and I'm actually going to do something um, rather unusual, and I hope this doesn't screw everything up completely. I'm going to the last slide of my presentation. I'm going to be talking about um, something called adaptation and something called loss and damage. And I think um, MJ framed uh, it really well in looking at where we are um, on the tra trajectory of temperature and um, a 2.7 degree world or a 3.6 degree world, which were two of the um, top level parameters that she was talking about, um, mean um, potentially um, much stronger and more extreme weather events um, that are more frequent um, and also slower um, onset impacts um, due to melting glaciers, et cetera, that give rise to um, sea level increases, um, uh, increasing ocean temperatures, which change the whole ecosystem of oceans, etc. And so that's what I'm looking at, is what do we do when, one, we don't mitigate fast enough, um, and, and what do we do um, to try and minimize or reduce the impacts um, of increasing temperatures. And so what I have here is I have a picture of... Um, uh, Dominica, that was a, a recent uh, tropical storm. Dominica's in the Caribbean. If you go um, counterclockwise, that's the Philippines. That's um, uh, Typhoon Haiyan that happened in 2013. This is a, a, a flood in Bangladesh from 20, 2007. That's de desertification in Africa. Those two women are walking in Bolivia on what used to be a glacier. Um, uh, a year-round glacier, um, which has melted and no longer exists. And the final one is Vanuatu um, Cyclone Pam, which happened in March of this year. So you can see that those impacts are global. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that um, I'm going to be looking at um, from a legal standpoint, um, uh, where we are um, look on adaptation and loss and damage in the Paris Agreement. Um, this might be a bit dry. Those are the only pictures I have. Um, and, um, and, and I'm, I, I am going to provide a, some of my opinion about maybe this sort of pessimism, optimism um, perspective, but I'm going to give you some, some law to begin with, just to show you what we have in the agreement and, and, and where it sits. So I'm starting with adaptation. And in the agreement, um, the, there are no names. The articles aren't, have no titles. They just have article numbers. Um, those, the titles went away at the, at the end, however, and, and the, the articles are grouped by, um, by, by issue. And so the, the adaptation issues um, are primarily found in Article 7 of the agreement. 
Um, Article 7 establishes a global goal in adaptation, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about what that is, um, but that's new. Um, and this global goal is meant to contribute to sustainable development, and I wanted to bring out the sustainable development aspect because the title of this um, event um, is, is looking at um, present and future generations, and the, no, the concept of sustainable development embodies this notion of future generations. So the agreement do, is looking um, and considering future generations um, through this, this um, provision around sustainable development in the context of the temperature goals. So the, the Article 2 um, uh, purpose uh, with the temperature goal of well below 2 degrees um, and, and, and pushing towards 1.5, um, it is tied to the, the types of impacts that um, you will have to deal with um, and adapt to. Um, it takes into account the urgent and immediate needs of particularly vulnerable developing countries. It doesn't say who they are. Um, if, there's, if there's been um, poison between developed and developing countries in terms of, of mitigation discussions, um, there is a very kind of unfortunate um, poison amongst developing countries in that um, they argue as to who is um, most vulnerable. Um, I think there's, a, there's a, 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 a fear that if your country's not classified as particularly vulnerable, that somehow you'll miss out on support or financing um, for your adaptation needs. Um, and, and so uh, there, there were long internal discussions all the way from the beginning to the end of the Paris conference amongst developing countries as to um, the, the particular wording that would be used in the adaptation section. And, um, and the agreement was particularly vulnerable developing countries, full stop. Um, and no further delineation there. And I think that's a, a really interesting and important aspect to, to, to bear in mind. Um, the, uh, the agreement recognizes um, support for adaptation and measuring the adequacy of it. And support includes um, finance, money, but it also includes um, transfer of technologies and capacity building. Um, guidance on adaptation planning processes, um, submission of adaptation communications to be logged in a public registry. Again, um, this notion of a public registry that is published um, on, the, on the UNFCCC website, et cetera, but very different from a mitigation registry um, and, um, and, and a very different sort of format and certainly no evaluation of um, individual country efforts um, on adaptation and the, and the types of communications they, they submit. Um, and adaptation is uh, also part of the global stock take. I'm not exactly sure how you're going to measure a collective adaptation effort in a global stock take um, in the same way you would measure car carbon reductions um, in, in, a, in a stock taking um, scenario, but, um, but that's mm -hmm. uh, some work that has to be done going forward between now and the time the agreement uh, comes into place. But there are also adaptation provisions in many other articles. Article 4 in mitigation looks at co-benefits co um, of adaptation efforts. Some adaptation um, actions have mitigation um, benefits. Uh, the red plus um, reducing emissions of for, uh, de deforestation and um, and, and 
and preserving forests um, also looks at adaptation and how adaptation can work um, there. Voluntary cooperation, which I think is um, code language for market mechanism, um, also talks about adaptation and, and reserving some of the proceeds of these market mechanisms to, um, to fund adaptation actions in developing countries. Financing for adaptation, adaptation technologies, um, capacity building for adaptation, transparency of action and support, so some for form of of reporting and compliance around adaptation, very, very loose and very weak, um, and then the global stock take. There's also a decision that covers the agreement, and it talks a lot about adaptation. There's a whole section on adaptation, which includes a review of adaptation-related um, arrangements under the convention, um, but there's also adaptation uh, spread throughout um, the, the decision, which you can see all the different areas. I won't... I'm, won't go into too much detail there. Where do we find loss and damage in the agreement? Um, loss and damage is what's hap what happens when you can't adapt anymore. It, it's, it's, um, it, and it can sometimes be irreversible and permanent, um, it, but it's, 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 it's not defined anywhere. Um, but the feeling amongst um, many or most developing countries is that it's, it's when you can no longer adapt. It's beyond adaptation. Um, and there was a, a great push amongst developing countries to have loss and damage considered separately in the agreement. Um, and and there, that, in that respect, successful. There is a separate article that looks just at loss and damage. Um, it recognizes the importance of um, addressing loss and damage. Um, and it... Um, again, looks at sustainable development. It takes an existing mechanism under the convention that, um, that uh, deals with loss and damage, and it allows the new agreement to take that um, mechanism and enhance it and strengthen it where necessary. Um, it provides for support on uh, uh, enhanced support for loss and damage. Again, support can be money, but it, it can be a number of other things. Um, it lists examples of, of what... Um, types of um, efforts uh, uh, need to be made to address loss and damage, including addressing irreversible um, and permanent losses and damages, um, and, uh, and, and looks at international cooperation. Um, the decision also um, has a section on loss and damage, um, and it, it, um, it gives a lot more detail around and how the institutional arrangements working on loss and damage will continue to work on issues, and it prioritizes a number of issues, including um, risk transfer and um, displacement, human displacement um, resulting from climate change. Um, there's one interesting provision um, in the decision, um, it's in the decision, not in the agreement. Um, but it says um, the parties agree um, that Article 8 of the agreement, which mm -hmm. is the loss and damage article, does not involve or provide a basis for any liability or compensation. That's not uh, quite verbatim, but it's almost verbatim of what, what it, that says in the, in, um, the, the uh, decision. Um, again, I know I have a limited amount of time, and I could talk to you for hours about this, um, but there's... a significant concern amongst many um, industrialized countries that they would somehow be 
could be deemed liable for loss and damage in um, in other countries, and that there would be there could be some uh, requirement to compensate for that loss and damage, and um, and this provision in the the decision is an effort, and certainly was a condition of many uh, developed countries to even consider having loss and damage in the agreement, um, to. Um, to ring fence or, or, or to attempt to um, uh, take liability and compensation for uh, loss and damage to, to climate change off the table. So that's what this provision is about. Um, and I'm certainly happy to ask any more, answer any more questions around that and um, other things. So um, how much time do I have left? <laughs> Five minutes. Okay, thank you. I, I'm cognizant that um, it's hard to see um, the chair telling us. <laughs> That's good. I can do this in five minutes. Okay, so adaptation. Um, I, I'm going to look at some of the provisions in the agreement, and um, and maybe this is the pessimism-optimism sort of um, game that um, that we're, we're, we're playing. Um, and what's new, and then... Is it really new? <laughs> um, looking at back at, at um, what we have already on, on the, under the Convention on Adaptation and, and Loss and Damage. So there's a global goal on adaptation that's new. Um, the goal is to enhance adaptive capacity, strengthen resilience, and reduce vulnerability. Um, if you look back at um, one of the key decisions on adaptation that was taken in Cancun in, in 2010, Decision 1 CP16, um, it basically doesn't say global goal, but it recognizes um, the, the urgent need to reduce vulnerability and build resilience. So um, we've already kind of established a global goal without calling it that. So new, not so new. Um, it recognizes the adaptation efforts of developing countries. This is something very new. Um, a number of developing countries are really quite adamant that they, um, they're, they're doing adaptation already. Countries are already doing adaptation. They're spending their own money from their own budget to do adaptation. And they, and they really want to have that recognized. I think there's a long history for why they want that recognized, but nevertheless, that's something new. That's something truly new. And, um, and the convention processes are going to be working on modalities for how to um, capture the, or, or recognize ad adaptation efforts of developing countries. Um, adaptation costs and needs are tied to mitigation efforts. That's something that hasn't really happened ex as explicitly and certainly isn't explicit in the convention now. So that's newish. Um, the public registry um, is new. Um, and support for adaptation is not new. Um, if you Again, if you look at Decision 1 CP 16 um, from Cancun 2010, um, that the language uh, here long-term, scaled-up, predictable, new and additional finance technology and capacity building for adaptation um, is, is the finance provision for adaptation that's already in a convention decision. And it, it actually is far more elaborate than any um, financing uh, for adaptation language in the agreement. So um, new, not so new. Um, uh, and adaptation is included in the global stock take. Again, I think there needs to, there's going to have to be some significant methodological work to figure out how you capture a collective um, global adaptation number. Um, we already have a communication for adaptation actions um, present in the convention, so some of the communication provisions aren't so new. We have a national adaptation planning process, so any of the uh, planning uh, 
process provisions, not so new. Um, uh, if sat, it, the decision establishes regional centers, but we've already called for that, so not so new. Um, and, and again, what's not new is that countries over a very long period of time have not been able to agree on which countries are particularly vulnerable. So again, not so new. Um, new or not so new in loss and damage. Well, loss and damage is treated in a separate article and not linked to adaptation, and that is new. Um, currently, under the convention process, loss and damage um, kind of sit under the same framework. Um, and, and I think, at least from a profiling and a political standpoint, having and treating loss and damage separately um, is, is, is a big leap. Um, and um, loss and damage, uh, it's recognized that there is um, irreversible and permanent damage that needs to be addressed. Um, again, pushing the envelope somewhat from where parties had, some parties had been. Um, scope to um, enhance current institutional arrangements. Um, enhanced support uh, for loss and damage, but not through the financial mechanism of the convention, but by parties. So that's a little bit out there in terms of support. Um, and guidance to the current institutional arrangements on, on immediate work that needs to be done. But there's no mention of loss and damage in the finance section of the agreement. Um, and uh, what the, the if you, if you boil it down, we're using the same institutional arrangements that exist already for loss, uh, loss and damage, no, no new modes of work, no new institutional arrangements, we're, and, 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 uh, and actually um, uh, no, no, uh, no new work plan at this stage. Um, there's some upcoming work. I think I'm going to skip that slide because um, I'm, I'm conscious that I'm, I'm uh, hitting my, my limit. These are my parting words. Um, on adaptation... I think there was some profile boosting of adaptation in the agreement. Um, there's a nod to the link between mitigation ambition and adaptation needs and integration into transparency and stock-taking regimes, um, additional optional reporting avenues that are very flexible for, depending on parties' capacities. But I don't believe that there, there's a, a, a quantum leap out of the Cancun adaptation framework for adaptation in the agreement. It just it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot that's new. Um, if, you, if, you're, if you want to do something, an exercise, I would suggest that you take the adaptation section of the agreement and this decision, 1CP16, um, the adaptation section, and compare them. Um, you might find um, some surprising similarities. On loss and damage, separate treatment in a legal document, um, that's, that I believe is a big step. How that, how that gets pushed forward um, is, is, is still to be seen, but nevertheless, that was a, a big win. Um, recognition that um, loss and damage has to be addressed and that it may be irreversible and permanent. Um, scope for enhancing current institutional arrangements, um, but explicit limitations on findings of liability and provision of compensation, and no mention of funding loss and damage under the financial mechanism of the convention, and no new mode of working beyond the whim. So, so again, um, some potentially politically important um, wins, um, however, um, a lot of uh, still business as usual on loss and damage in the agreement. Um, that's uh, all I have for now, um, and I look forward to any questions that you might have. Thanks very much. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Linda. That was, that was almost perfect time. Now, uh, welcome to the stage, um, James Cameron.
who doesn't have any slides, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Oh, they give us a meltdown. All right, Fora. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> so it's uh, it's rather wonderful to be to be back here um, after some time and to see uh, old friends and colleagues on the panel and have a chance to uh, talk to you about this agreement in Paris. And so what I'm going to do is I'll give you some impression, my impressions of the agreement. Um, I'm going to try and make a connection between the fact of the agreement, some content in the agreement, and finance and technology. I'm really interested in the relationship between the three. Um, I've had a go uh, over many years at getting at climate change through a number of angles, including creating financial organizations, working with organizations like CDP and Carbon Tracker, trying to get capital to flow towards the solutions and away from enhancing the problem and creating more risk. And I've done most of my work on climate change for developing countries or for those who are most affected and least able to look after their own interests without a global agreement. And so I'm going to tell you that I celebrated Paris. Uh, I think it is a moment that needs to be grasped, to be um, territory to be taken away from those who want to do nothing, uh, and I believe it is already making a difference. I felt as if uh, the, actually the day of the final decision, which of course everything was postponed, it always is, uh, there's always sleepless nights and delay, uh, but on that final day, uh, I was already meeting with people about what we do the day after. And I can tell you that in the, even after the Christmas break and people going away and having you know, long sleeps, things are moving in all sorts of interesting ways, including in the area of finance. So I'm going to suggest to you that I'm taking as a reference point for what needs to be done and how fast it needs to be done even more alarming scenarios than you've heard about already. So despite working on this for so many years, late 80s I started working on this, thinking that perhaps I wouldn't be able to be shocked about new facts that come to light, I was a participant in a process that the Foreign Office here led with a number of governments, particularly with the Chinese and the Indians, led by the Royal Society over the summer, where some attempt was made to add probabilistic analysis, risk analysis, to the IPCC scenarios that lie behind so much of this work. And I sat in the back of the room in a very grand setting in Lancaster House, and a Chinese professor from uh, Tsinghua University, calmly, without really thinking to alter the tone of his voice, said, and we have determined that there is a 50% probability that the business as usual scenario, which you can challenge and attack, it has its flaws, but it is pretty much, as it says, it is the business as usual, it's carrying on as we are. That produces a six to seven degree warming in a hundred years. Six to seven degrees. And I, I, I had to stand up and say, I'm sorry that I hear that correctly. 
<clears throat> so I think, and this is particularly important for people who work in, in, in the world of finance, who are constantly trying to evaluate risk and opportunity and rates of return, 50% probability on decent evidence based on that which we are doing today that in a hundred years, just think about it in generational terms, you're standing next to a, a grandparent or a, you know, or, a, or a nephew or niece that's younger than you, or in my case, my own children. In a hundred years, that degree of warming is not manageable for human society. That's a world of extreme conflict and hardship. It's certainly a world of war and Probably there is no equivalent experience to draw upon. So it's a massive experiment in human civilization in 100 years. So I'm taking that as my reference point. That's what all of this is about. It's about preventing that from happening. Fast. Because you've seen in the presentations already that you have very little time to change, to alter course. You have to make really significant changes quickly by which I mean within a decade. If you take seriously what was agreed in Paris, that we need to aim towards a 1.5 degree mm -hmm. target over the course of this century, that means things like total decarbonisation of our economy by around 2050. That means perhaps leaving, this is carbon tracker, uh, analysis you're, means using maybe around 18 to 20 percent of the fossil fuel reserves that we currently have and all the rest we don't touch. It means fundamentally altering pretty much every sector of our economy so that it is progressively mm. decarbonizing transportation, energy and power obviously, trying to build a circular economy so we use our waste effectively, all of that, and all of it with the capital that we have, which is substantial, we have enough capital to do this. We don't lack the financial resources, but we do not have a financial system that is capable of delivering those outcomes today. It's not structured in a way that makes that likely. It's not incentivized to do it, either by public policy or the rules of the game of operating in, in, in the capital markets. And the agreement itself cannot be depended upon to deliver. So, so why am I still nonetheless optimistic? And it goes a bit like this. The, the, the agreement makes a difference to financing just because it's an agreement. Markets actually like quite simple messages. It would have been catastrophic not to have agreed. So the fact of agreement is just as important as the details you've heard about in directing finance. I went to a board meeting in New York the week after a very large company, there's no, no uh, secret, GE, I'm on, the, on, on the, a board, an environment board they have, really important to take the message of agreement to that place. Accelerated investment decisions help resolve what should we do about this or that technology, increase the marketing spend, all that kind of stuff. That's the value of a universal agreement as well. That's the value of having a long-term goal, which was actually tougher than expected. I don't know about you guys. I, I was, and I think the AOSIS, who 
we have associations with, did a fantastic job uh, with the help of people like Mary Robinson and, and others advocating the 1.5 degree target. And you can actually feel it happening during the course of the second week that that was, could easily happen, and it did. That's remarkable. That's really important for directing finance. However, too much of the conversation that we have inside this process is about public finance, when we know for certain that even if we were incredibly successful at extracting out of the treasuries of the world public money to deal with this problem, it would be completely inadequate. So the new climate economy, which is a coalition of various uh, experts, economists mostly, Nick Stern is a well-known figure uh, in that group, they came up with a figure of 90 trillion, 90 trillion dollars worth of investment required. So, uh, who knows, but that seems to me to be in the rights of scale of things for a big transformation that we need. Public money, of course, cannot possibly approach that number. <clears throat> so, when we talk about finance, we must, be, we must know what we mean by finance. It's everything that we have. It's all the financial resources we have, wherever they are in the world, in order to invest in the right innovative technologies, the right infrastructure, in this, in this massive transformation of our economy, our global economy. It's not about the United Kingdom putting money into DFID to put money into sub-Saharan Africa, important though that is. So if you ask yourself critical questions, how would we transform the Indian economy to make it less based on coal and more based on solar? Prime Minister Modi made a big statement in Paris, launched an initiative, the French government and other governments, a big solar initiative. Fantastic idea, needs a lot of money. Where's that money going to come from? Well, the answer is most of the money for the huge Indian solar initiative will come from India. It will come from Indian savers, Indian banks, Indian investors. It will not come from Western governments. Sub-Saharan Africa, however, if you want to have a major, and we'll need to have a major investment in access to energy for all those who don't have power, and where, for the first time since I've been working on these issues, clean energy wins on cost. We can get clean energy to a vast amount of people who have none today and really bring them into the global economy and make them active participants and indeed empower them, literally, at lower cost now because of the change in the price of renewables than before. But to do that, we probably do need a lot more leverage from public finance, mixing public and private finance. But, but it can be done. It's perfectly achievable. That kind of finance could be transformative really quickly. Other challenges, like building the infrastructure of the world in a different way so it's resilient and, and adapted to climate change, again, is going to need public money, but not for the whole cost, public money in order to reduce risk to investors, public money in order to distribute risk among other investors in, for example, the insurance market. So when we talk about finance, we have to talk about relatively small amounts 
of public finance combining with substantial amounts of private finance in order to deliver public goods, which does take us back to the value of this global agreement. The other thing I've come to understand, despite being a very strong advocate of the form of the previous agreements, Framework Convention and the Kyoto Protocol, is that the complexity of this problem and the diversity of response that is required to solve it does argue for the kind of contributions that have been offered up in this process. We don't know, it's, we'll have to find out over the next 10 years or so, but I have a feeling, can't be any better than that, that these contributions will be more effective at delivering that long-term goal than had we tried to make some kind of quota system work and extend to the next round of large industrializing countries like China and Brazil and India. And in the end, and it's a huge if, if those INDCs are turned into climate plans which are turned into national laws, they're more likely to be implemented than if they were directed from the international level. And we have some evidence of that already. For example, Mexico was under no legal obligation to create their own carbon regime after Copenhagen, but they did it. They did it with good political leadership, Felipe Calderon, their own institutions, a lot of help from, uh, from the World Bank and other people working on carbon pricing and the like. So a lot of people brought resources, including public resources, to, to that end, but, but they weren't required to do that. In some sense, they were inspired to do that by what was still called a failure in Copenhagen. Right? We've got a much better structure this time, much more comprehensive, much more detailed than we had in Copenhagen, and I, and I am confident that governments will bring forward regimes that will have the force of law, therefore legally binding, in their own jurisdiction. And that is what investors look for. They want to know if the rules of the game have changed, and will they win or lose from the rules of the game that have changed. And clarity is everything there. Simplicity, clarity, reduction in uncertainty, that's what makes capital flow. Okay. However, the volumes are nowhere near enough to date. We don't have sight of that amount of capital. And we can't depend upon a regulatory framework alone to deliver it. It's very important, but it's not sufficient. So one of the other reasons why I like, and I'm, I was pleased at the outcome in Paris, is that the outcome includes contributions from a lot of non-state actors. If you do a bit of, kind of research on all of the contributions that could be labelled finance, some of them come under a clean energy heading, some under cities and mayors, some under more discreet uh, financial instruments like green bonds, there are loads. I mean, there is a long list. Now, some of them are just promises, right? Is it financial institutions saying, yeah, we'll, we'll do this? And, and some of them really don't know how. But add them up, and it's huge. It's far, far more than the 100 billion a year figure that we've been using in, 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 in public finance, in climate finance discussions for many years. Way, way more. Trillions. So 
In amongst all those contributions, there are some very particular financial regulation contributions that could be hugely important. Today, I was in the Bank of England with a bunch of people trying to make a connection between the Paris Agreement and the Bank of England's regulatory powers. In Paris, the Bank of England and the Chinese Central Bank and one or two other institutions announced that they are going to make green finance one of the agenda items for the G20 in China this year. Now, the work's being done. Who knows what they come out with? It'll probably take a couple of years. But the mere fact that these critical central banks have now finally absorbed that climate change is a systemic risk and are looking at the way they regulate financial markets to try and reduce that risk and are starting to absorb information constructed by others like Carbon Tracker and the, the Standard Assets uh, Group at, at Oxford, try to understand, well, what could we do? What levers can we pull? How could we make it easier for capital to flow into the solutions and away from increasing risk with our own regulatory powers? That, I think, is a consequence of this process, would not have happened without it, isn't embedded in the agreement that you've been so ably um, uh, described, so ably described to you this evening, but is part of the Paris outcome. It's one of the other contributions. So let me finish off with technology. I'm not much excited by the technology transfer discussions that have been going on for years. On the whole, <coughs> technology does not get transferred. It gets bought and sold. Now, public money can be used to accelerate innovation, and it should be, research and development, patenting, public budgets that have been hugely important in creating all of these gadgets that we carry around. I mean, the public money has been very important in, in innovation. But things get traded and transferred. They don't, they don't really get moved from government to government. So what matters most is that after Paris, people get excited about the prospect of technology innovation and they invest in it for their own reasons. So again, if you look in Paris at what people said they were going to do, there are signs everywhere that those who fund innovation, including people like Bill Gates and you know, Google were very active, Apple, um, Zuckerberg, the people declaring we are going to put substantial resources off our own balance sheets or off our own, from our own wealth into huge technological innovation to try and meet these targets. And again, I am choosing to include that in the Paris outcome. I don't think you would have got any of that without this process that's been dragging on for years and years and years. So I, again, I've decided to celebrate Paris, to take that territory, to give nothing to those who want to do nothing, to assert that it's necessary to use it to facilitate capital flows into the solutions, that we're nowhere near at the scale we require, but there are many promising signs in the totality of the Paris outcome that allow you to feel at least optimistic that you can make progress on that agenda. And ultimately, optimism sells. <laughs>
where you bring together outcomes rather than just the agreement. And I think that's, that, that's an interesting and uh, exciting approach. So now if uh, just turn to Professor David Firth from Imperial College, who is going to act as discussant and bring together some of the threads and also um, give his own perspective after many years of observing uh, the uh, negotiations himself. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think it's said in uh, the blurb that, you know, I'm from Imperial College, I write lots of engineering things, but I think I'm here because I was one of the people who negotiated the original framework convention, which has passed. My white hairs are actually from the Kyoto Convention, <laughs> which uh, is another story altogether. And interesting enough, I think we all uh, feel rather gently about marrying it. Um, my day job now at Imperial is a completely different one. It's actually about helping people work out how they would design infrastructure that's probably going to have 150 years life in it. Um, most infrastructure is climate dependent. So we have to stand back and look at the Paris Agreement and decide what on earth it means. Does it mean the world is rescued? Does it actually mean it's still six degrees centigrade? And what I wanted to do was come from that angle. Right? I'm not saying there's any absolute position here, but I want to come from the angle of people who are looking at the agreement from outside the process, who are not necessarily persuaded that these sort of processes have always produced outcome. Having said that, um, uh, as an old-timer in the UN negotiating field, I think the French really do need some congratulation of bringing an outcome. One of the tricky things about very large international negotiations is even if most of the countries sort of think they want to get to an agreement, it's extremely easy for this um, irritated animal to get in a bad mood and fail to do it. It takes an awful lot of skill to get these animals, herding cats, I think we talk about in academia, but actually it's very much like herding cats. And they did some extremely clever stuff in producing it. Um, uh, if you've actually downloaded the Paris Agreement, it's really long, actually. It's about, about 30, 32 pages, um, which, again, is a very difficult vehicle to handle. But what I've done, I suppose, is look with the sort of scars of the original Framework Convention about what was going on in this text that the French so skillfully managed to produce. Because I agree with one of the previous speakers. What I think is the triumph of the Paris Agreement is it, it did not screw up. My own feeling, yeah, my own feeling was that um, uh, things were looking rather bad during the process. It was beginning to go through the very standard pantomime that international environmental agreements seem to need to go through. Right? Um, I have a joke with my students that uh, they're being lectured by a very distinguished professor who uh, talking about climate change, had lunch with Prince Charles and supper with Mrs. Thatcher, but spent all night with Angela Merkel. Yeah. <laughs> because that's how long the Conference of the Parties one lasted, which was a, actually a 30-hour session to agree the text. And he's been doing this for ages, and it's not necessarily the way in which other people do frame conventions. And he was heading up towards this thing, he was heading up to these famous chairman's text, meaning that you have months and months of everyone disagreeing with everything and adding lots of square brackets. So everyone is convinced that 
a draft has to be put forward by the chair, and that's where the French skill came in. But that skill has to be, let's get my thumb up to, that skill has to be had a look at exactly what they managed to do. Because um, to me, a lot of the explicit problems in the FCCC actually are still there, but they've now been made implicit, which I view as a forward sort of move. But if they had failed to get agreement, it actually means the whole mechanism of the framework convention would have collapsed, right? Literally collapsed. There would be no point having another conference of parties because it had failed to agree on anything. And the ability <laughs> to agree on something is an extraordinary way of stopping that enormous backsliding, as again was mentioned, because suddenly if, if international governments couldn't even agree a piece of language, how on earth are they going to agree on financing programs or sticking windmills or place or whatever? There would be an extraordinary loss of, 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 of confidence in the process. Having said that, there's some problems you ought to know about. Um, number one is it's, it's a climate change convention that this is an agreement under. Um, the reason it's called framework was entirely a suggestion by the US State Department because they were terrified that Senate would not ratify the thing. Right? In fact, it was ratified on a Tuesday afternoon, I think it was Tuesday afternoon, by only 11 senators who assumed they were passing some piece of trivial legislation because it was a framework convention and therefore had no binding. If you look at Article 4.2 of the Framework Convention, which is now obsolete, it, it's simply saying um, um, industrialised countries are going to have their, their emissions in 2000 back to their 1990 levels. That's what it says. That's one sentence. When you read it, it's four sentences. And why was that? It's because the State Department uh, had to work out with me over the phone on a Saturday lunchtime how on earth we would produce a sentence in which 1990-2000 levels appeared to be close enough for the Germans to think it was a binding target and far enough away for the US Senate to think that this wasn't actually anything but a, a wish. It's called an agreement, and I think most of you know this, it's called an agreement because if there were anything else, President Obama would have to put it through Senate. And those of you who enjoy being lawyers, and I think I'm in the right building for this, will already have seen there's a mass of stuff over there on the US um, academic blogs as to whether they have pulled off the trick that this agreement doesn't have to go in front of Senate. Right? Uh, because in principle, if it's only an agreement, it's little more than an original framework convention, but actually it has operative articles, some of which we've been talking about. And that does, unfortunately, leave a bug in the works because the great attraction of Americans ratifying anything is that then it brings in the enormous power of their uh, judicial system to control the executive and Senate in what they're doing. They've made a commitment, it becomes judiciable. And what isn't absolutely clear now is whether or not the agreements, who actually the agreements are judiciable on in terms of the agreement in the US. Well, I don't live in the US, um, probably wouldn't get a visa these days. Um, so I, 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 I wouldn't put it, but it's, it's a problem. Uh, those, we'll see in a minute if I can uh, encourage my laptop to behave itself. Um, the, so the next thing I ought to say is, that of course, this, this is an international agreement, and I'm, this is grandmother sucking eggs in the expert um, uh, arena. But of course, international law is binding only if you choose to make it binding to, on yourself, yeah? So um, we're on the 18th floor 
of the uh, UN building. We've been up for two days. We're all totally exhausted. We know we've agreed a chairman's text only because one of us was so tired they made a mistake. But we are now so tired we don't even care who. And we're checking the text before it's going to go out to be pumped through as FCCC. And I noticed the Indian delegate, Descupto, sitting on my left, isn't looking at the bit we're all looking at the front end. He's looking at the back. And I said, well, what are you doing? It's the front. He said, no, David. He said, if you sign an international convention, check first the text that tells you how you leave it. Yeah? Article 28, which we didn't cover, actually says you've got, what, a year? You've got a year, and you can leave the agreement. Right? So it's sort of kind of binding. Right? But since we've been through things like international whaling and nuclear proliferation, in which actually the trick of being in and then coming out has been around, right, that we have to face the fact that we're operating with a quasi-binding system. Once it's ratified, uh, sure enough, it will be binding while that legislature chooses to, to live with it or not. But that's life. I mean, there's a very famous thing by Thomas Paine, who's arguing against Edmund Burke, saying Edmund Burke, you know, said the British people had really liked some previous monarch, so you ought to like monarchy. And he says, you can't, a future generation can't be bound by its past generation. And one has to live with that. It's the nature of what a, a diocese is. But what I think is really brilliant by the French, which was an enormous problem for the negotiator of the Framework Convention, is that they chose to have a temperature target, not an emissions target. An emissions target is a big existential threat. Right? An emissions target, I don't think you've ever noticed the irony, um, at the two degrees centigrade target is the only one that the previous uh, President George Bush could have signed up to because he was confident there wasn't actually any global warming anyway. And that, yeah? If you, I don't know if many of you read the Financial Times, but there was a, a charm offensive by Charles Koch, who you ought to have heard of, because he's an enormous funder, like in billions, of essentially the Tea Party, or the extreme right of the American um, Republican Party. And in the course of this charm offensive, he actually asked by the FT to um, say what he thinks about climate change. And he said, well, yeah, it's, it's changing. Um, but, you know, it's gone up about a degree, nothing that's very manageable. Because one of the snags at the moment is that the models are over-predicting the temperature we're at at the moment. Now, as we've heard, the modelers will say this is all heating in the pipeline, it hasn't come through yet. Uh, but if you just simply, and you can do it yourself, the regression, you know, you can use a standard piece of regression service must use every day of the week. Just take the temperature record and the greenhouse gas concentration and regress one against the other. Uh, you get right at the bottom of the sensitivity range of the IPCC. Right? This year is a blip on the top. And I, uh, and I think it's always a test what sort of environmentalists you are as to whether you actually every night when you go to bed, assuming you pray, you pray that the skeptics are right. Because yeah. if they were right, it means actually the environment's going to be good, we can carry on doing life, we can really enjoy ourselves. And there's a creepy feeling, I sometimes get it, is I really wish they were wrong. But then actually I get into this problem of models project a great deal. So the models are very creepy. We don't really quite know, we don't really know what to do. But also we also understand the limitations of these type of models. And I think it's a very wicked problem because characteristically, 
Governments have actually really waited, uh, as we'll see in a minute, uh, for, for physical evidence rather than projected evidence for what they want to do. Um, but the temperature limit is a much more smart way of getting an agreement, right? And as we said, it focuses a sense of trying to understand where we're going. And I think that's a, a, a brilliant idea. It's also, I think we said before, is it's found a really neat way of getting around this idiot Annex 1 and, and other parties um, uh, which got stuck in the Framework Convention. Why was it in the Framework Convention? Because the Framework Convention had to be ready for the Rio Conference, and the Rio Conference needed everybody to have signed up to it. Most international conventions don't set up with that ambition. Uh, they are signed up with people who are interested in what is going on about it, and they encourage other people to come in. But the consequence of the process of that was it was just a bizarre thing. And there was a model that Annex 1 would be OECD countries, but it had been going five minutes. Uh, Mexico joined the OECD, and that didn't get into Annex 1. Korea joined, the, and that didn't get into Annex 1. So this is a real breakthrough, in my view, is that actually you're having a flat platform in which you're talking about what's essentially a collective process. Uh, the old phrase, which I think originally came from an Indian delegation, of, of, of uh, common but differentiated responsibility is in the text and got lost, but it no longer drives it in quite the way that it does in the Framework Convention. Of course, since it's an agreement under the Framework Convention, it's there as a fallback if you want to be very difficult about things. But that, I guess, is, is life. So what do I make it? If I'm going around recommending, you know, how high your seawalls ought to be and so on. I think that at the moment, the international governmental community is almost following step by step the standard way in which it handles serious pollution problems. That is to say, it makes an awful lot of noise and monitors and has no cause of concern for ages, and then suddenly it really hits dead babies in the street, and it moves at an extraordinary rate. Right? And this at the moment I still count as the bit of noise. What I think was really important was that, that we pulled out loss and damage, right? which I thought was an extraordinary move, because otherwise it was being muddled up into adaption. And loss and damage is what you're going to get. Even if you got, even you got to two degrees centigrade, you have loss and damage all over the place. Right? Okay. Whether you count Carlisle and Aberdeenshire and the rest of it as loss and damage, it, you really will have... Because one of the things we have in civil engineering is that the, the temperature record is now so contaminated by, by global warming, we actually couldn't physically, as a statistical exercise, tell you what to do in temperatures, even before we got to the models, which have no idea what's really going on in regions and give you lots of scenarios. So you're going to have a period of repairing things that surprised you, because that's the nature of the warming that you're going to have. And my completely uninformed projection is that actually poor little Article 8 will be the horse on the outside that very gradually catches up and takes over the rest of the bumbling exercise of the agreement and the framework convention. My suspicion is, if you follow, again, the normal track record of governments, is they've got to fund this that loss and damage stuff, not necessarily broadly, even on their own country. 
Um, we are one of the few countries that still pulled the trick that the insurance countries, companies sort of cover flood damage. I don't suppose that lasts for much longer. As you know, it's a frig that actually all of us pay into that pool. Uh, so it's sort of like a tax, but we haven't noticed yet. And my suspicion is that if you were doing a real scenario, very gradually, people would start saying, well, we've got to pay all this damage. Why aren't we getting the emitters to pay for it? Yeah, at the moment, you know, this unsightly argument in, in the UK government about have we had enough flood defence and it's got to come out of Treasury funding and out of DEFRA's bid. That's always happened before, one of the things like Superfund, is the very great people have said, no, 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 we'll fund this out of carbon emissions and we'll fund it out of border taxes because one of the creepy things that's not addressed in the FCCC and certainly not addressed in the agreement, and I can easily understand why you want an agreement, right? is that carbon tourism is just not handled at all. Um, and we've had some really classic cases in the United Kingdom of essentially having a drop in our emissions because we don't do something anymore, but we bought it from somewhere actually in which actually slightly less efficient, so the net effect was the emissions went up. And uh, you probably know, I assume it's still true, that Qatar, Qatar has the highest emissions per capita. We didn't actually burn any of it. It's spending most of that making liquefied natural gas, which it turns up in our statistics as if it were gas. So, you know, these overheads have all got to be handled. So that's where I was coming from. I'm one, congratulate the French, because at least you kept the international mechanism running, and that could have easily gone wrong. Right? Two, there are no ends of rat traps and, and bits of threaded stuff in there which could go wrong in all the loops that are going around. And some people will be signing up to that agreement, ratifying it, because they know they've found where those wraps are, so don't get too optimistic. And thirdly, I really do think you need to look at paying and funding and how you do that for the climate damage you are inevitably going to get, whether it's three, six, or one and a half. And maybe it's time we thought about a carbon tax, though maybe not too theoretical, sheer practical stuff about funding something with the money. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. Um, so now we'll just take uh, a few questions from the floor. There are two microphones which can be unclipped and move around if somebody. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so if anybody has a question, uh, we'll take a few questions together and um, address the panel, please. Yeah, where you go. Are you, there's a, Is that on? Yes. Yeah. Um, it was just a question actually about common methodologies. Um, obviously, that's a critical issue in terms of how you compare uh, different approaches. I'm just wondering, has there been any movement, any, uh, any discussion of how common methodology is going to be agreed? Because there are so many different practices and processes in place. It's kind of, I can't imagine where you begin. Okay. I'll just see if there's any other questions before. Uh, please, there's uh, one down here. Thanks, Dan. Hello, thank you very much to the panel. It was uh, excellent presentations. Um, I have, can I ask two questions for you? Great. Um, the first one was kind of like a clarification on the, the uh, 
progress that Mexico has taken and as to why. Because you said they were inspired to take action, but governments are usually more than just inspired when they take action. So I'd like to understand a little bit more of the motivation as to why Mexico has taken a lead, in, in so to speak. And the second question is regarding, um, I think we discussed a lot within the course whether Copenhagen really was a failure or not. And what... Uh, from your point of view and from your experience, what's, um, how important is substance versus perception of triumph? Hi. Uh, my question goes to the design of the um, agreement and James's point about um, even though it relies on nationally determined contributions, it will eventually build up ambition. I'm interested to know whether you see any parallels with um, international trade law and the design of the um, gap trading system in ratcheting down um, trade barriers, um, and if that parallel is compelling, um, whether trade law might offer some insights into the potential challenges for this regime going forward. Okay, thank you. If we take that first round, and we'll take one more round after that. Thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, can we talk about Copenhagen a little bit? Or? Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's working. Um, on common methodologies, it's an interesting, it's an interesting issue um, because we, we definitely have this framework now, but we also have an agreement to agree. This is, this is the problem with, you know, when you say are you happy, you sad, it all depends on how it goes. It all depends on if countries do what they say they're going to do. It all depends on if we're successful in sitting down and developing the rule set for common methodologies. Um, we don't, we're now using two different sets. Some countries have, very, as I mentioned, very creative accounting systems, which make a total hash out of land sector accounting, you, you name it. We spent, Kyoto Protocol, we spent a lot of time agreeing rules, and then we spent years unagreeing rules, you know, going backwards and backwards and backwards. And, you know, I've, I've, I've enjoyed the feeling of having your finger stuck into the cliff, you know, as you go <laughs> backwards, you know, uh, undoing rules that have been, been done. So, good question around common methodology. I think you have, you have plenty of hooks in, in the agreement. You've got agreement that there will be common methodologies and that the parties will apply them. Um, you, you definitely have a, a notice that there, you, you have a recognition that there are systems that will inform the future system, so there's a rec but there's not an endorsement of those previous systems, because if you were to do that, you would be endorsing the bifurcated approach we've just tried to leave. So you're building upon that, and it informs where you're going. Um, we've also said that you, you will be applying this next set to your second set of NDCs. So it's kind of, we're not too worried about your first one, but we're more worried about the second one. And you can apply them to your first, but you don't have to. But it's hard to imagine how, it, it gets a little involved. So part of it comes back to, are we all going to be able to behave ourselves like adults and, you know, acknowledge that we've agreed that they will be, will be applying common methodologies and let's just get on and do it. Um, because there, there are always a few parties that are interested in finding that gap, finding that, yeah, that one little escape hatch um, through which they can protect their own particular interest. And that's, that's always, that's been the challenge, you know, year after year. So, um, yeah, the challenge is how you do that. And one of the things that will be interesting also is, is the time frame for entry into force. Because if it turns out that, uh, you know, we get enough parties on board early in this year as a result of all these political processes that happen, that'll be really interesting because the time frames for agreeing on a lot of these guidelines is, uh, you know, for presentation at the first meeting of the, at the first conference of the parties serving as the meeting of the parties to the Paris Agreement. So if we, if we get ratification now, guess what? Bang, crash. We'll be looking at each other in November and this thing will have entered into force and we'll be finding ourselves maybe without all the tools that we have said we will agree for the first meeting of the parties. So that could be very interesting and, and very panicky. 
Um, and then we'll see how much, uh, you know, enthusiasm there is for actually agreeing the rules now rather than over the course of the next five, five years. Um, I just, I, I won't solve the whole Copenhagen thing, but I will say it's interesting to look back. It's interesting to have a think about, um, it's interesting particularly to look back at what the U.S. was waving around in advance of Copenhagen as its draft implementing agreement, because it's very much what we arrived at. Um, there are some elements that, that we have now that we wouldn't have had then for sure. You know, if we have a lot of, uh, a lot more on rules for sure. We obviously have loss and damage that the U.S. would never have been enthusiastic about flagging up. Um, no matter what we end up doing with it over time. Uh, you know, we have compliance, we have, you know, five-year cycles, we wouldn't have had that in the, in the Copenhagen thing. Um, you know, what Copenhagen had that we don't have, <laughs> bizarrely, is it had annexes. Of course, they were empty, um, and there were two of them, one for developed and one for developing, so we've done a little better than that. But we don't have annexes. We have a, I could go on and on and on, so I, I will stop. But it is very instructive to have a think about um, what the key elements were of Copenhagen and, and, and whether we've done a bit better uh, or whether we, or whether we haven't, in some some regards, but okay. Just one thing to add on the on the methodologies side. Um, one positive aspect of this whole process, when we sort of embrace the non-state actors, is there going to be a lot of people who will work flat out to scrutinise everything in this. You know, non-governmental organisations, academic institutions. Uh, you know, there's a group I work with at Yale who've got people who are going to be looking at every aspect of what someone said they would do, and you know, there will be big discussions on metrics and so the, the the scrutiny will extend a long way beyond what governments do to each other inside the process. Second thing, Mexico, and maybe Mexico and Copenhagen linked. Positive, we, we are used to describing Copenhagen as a failure. And part of the reason was it was such an awful experience if you were there. And there was such hope invested in the outcome. So many people who were drawn in, uh, you know, huge gatherings of, of youth activists and, and, and businesses and CEOs who were left outside of the freezing cold and just got pissed off with the whole process. Felt as if this did not live up to expectations. And it was poorly managed and surprisingly badly managed, given who the hosts were. So the, the, a lot of goodwill was destroyed. And it, that meant people didn't look closely enough at what was actually agreed. And that was the moment where we did start to erase these artificial boundaries between the actors, the real world holders of the power to solve this problem. We, 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 after Copenhagen, that started, started to melt away as governments like Mexico and Korea put forward their own plans voluntarily without being required, without even fitting into the existing legal framework. No Mexico had no obligation to do what they did. So why did Mexico do it? Well, one of the reasons is because the circus came around to Cancun. Yes. So they, 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 they were one of the people who hosted one of the agreements. At the time that happened, they had a political leader who was a professor of economics who understood the problem and wanted to do something about it. And there were also some people surrounding him, in fact, they're all still working together, um, who, who did the work to persuade the right people in that administration that it was possible for them to do their own legislative program. And yes, they brought in help. Uh, and a lot of it was other people's money through agencies like the World Bank. A lot of money came 
via the World Bank to help with, for example, analysis of what carbon price and what mechanism to create. So Mexico is really instructive, so is Korea. Korea may be more because they saw an opportunity for them to sell technological solutions to the world. So they put a huge emphasis on what they could do with their own science and technology base and their own manufacturing base to, for example, make great strides on electric vehicles and storage batteries and, and new types of infrastructure for cities. And they decided to do that off their own bat because they thought a green economy was a successful strategy for economic development for them. That was their decision. And then, so the structure. I, I think this is a really interesting, open, academic, philosophical question that we can't answer yet. I'm giving you a hunch that this structure may be more effective at dealing with the complexity of the problem, the variety of possible solutions, the range of cultural dispositions to lawmaking and the choice of international, uh, choice of economic instrument. Some countries might favor a carbon tax, others might favor a more regulatory approach. Uh, some may be able to assert political authority and it will have an effect, viz China. There are, there are dozens of ways in which a collective effort can be assembled from a kind of mosaic of, of different interventions. But there is value in looking at the trading system for a couple of reasons. One, I think we can learn from the trading system how you do reviews. The trade policy review mechanism, the WTO, is quite a helpful, it, it's not transferable to this, but there are <coughs> lessons to be learned with how it is that you enable compliance, if you like. You, you facilitate a country meeting this long-term objective. Uh, but, but there's still discipline. You still don't want to... If you, and there's a differentiation, too. In the trade policy review mechanism, countries are not all treated the same depending on their economic development. So there's things to learn from that. The other thing to learn, which is, of course, we've heard already, is not there in this agreement, is that there is no trade mechanism. There's no trade enforcement mechanism in this agreement. But my sense is that as this gets more and more serious, as people start to regulate and differences start to emerge, it will be impossible to stop trade disputes that have an environment, brackets, climate edge to them. And people will look to use border tax adjustment. People will look to find ways of punishing those who are not playing the game and they'll use trade policy for it. And what we have to be careful of is that we don't transfer the whole responsibility of resolving climate conflicts to the WTO, who frankly could not handle it. It would overwhelm the system, right? Thank you. Uh, we're running short of time, so uh, I won't take another round, sorry. Uh, if I could just turn to Linda, if you've got anything to add to about maybe Copenhagen, I, there wasn't any particular question. And maybe, David, you would like to comment as well and maybe mm -hmm. about the, the uh, trade and the design and the mechanism. As well. yeah. um, thank you, and I'll, I'll be brief because I know we're, we're past time. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say a few words about Copenhagen versus Paris. I, I applauded at Paris, first of all. I, I haven't been on the record um, as others <laughs> have um, on the panel. I, I felt very, very happy at the end of the Paris meeting because I, um, I too feel that have, having the agreement and the agreement, the fact that all of those countries in that room agreed to something was um, 
the most important thing. And that the agreement itself is probably flexible enough that if we keep the pressure on, peer pressure, scientific, at political moments, et cetera, on that, um, that, we, that we can make something out of this. So, so that's mm -hmm. me on the record for, for Paris, even though I, 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 did, I was uh, critical uh, about some of the provisions that I spoke to you about. Um, and, and as far as Copenhagen goes, yes, it was personally and physically really the worst experience I've ever had. Um, it, I can't, I can't, I say that completely frankly. It was really un, unpleasant um, and emotionally um, as well as, as physically. Um, but I do believe that, um, that, that Cancun actually took a lot of the elements from, from the Copenhagen Accord and started to push things forward. Um, and if it takes that kind of disaster to um, to uh, to create um, change and movement, then I guess um, you might call that um, a success. Uh, I wonder if I could characteristically offer a tangential thought. Um, one of the things that produced an enormous amount of momentum in drawing up the Framework Convention was that had been an extraordinarily successful negotiating process on the Montreal Protocol for CFCs, yeah? Nine years, was it faster than almost any other international convention ever been done? But it had one other characteristic, which if they hadn't got it agreed, um, that they were gonna be in very real trouble because almost anybody who was industrialized, and that, that includes developing countries, could make these things in their back garden. I mean, it's, it's a nasty, process but it could make them so it was something that could have spread like a industrial pandemic what was slightly fascinating about climate change is there's only about five countries who dig this fossil fuel stuff up in the first place and if they suddenly decided to save the planet the rest of us would have to sort it out okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much. And I'd really like you to thank, you, thank the panel. They've been excellent. Thank you all for coming. And uh, if you would like to join us upstairs um, for drinks, I'd also like to just, I forgot at the beginning to say thank you for the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy for sponsoring the event and the Law, Environment and Development Centre for hosting as well. So thank you very much. Goodbye. This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening.